So this afternoon we're going to study Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. And uh, we'll pray before we read that passage. So please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray now that as we study your word, that you would indeed open our hearts to to your word, that by the power of your Holy Spirit it would accomplish its work within us. Lord, may we receive your word for that which it truly is, the very words of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, we're going to study verses 37 to 42, but I actually want to put it into its context of, of Jesus preaching to his disciples. So we're going to start reading today from chapter 6, verse 20 through to verse 42. So if you'll read with me, Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Verse 37. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his master. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. Well, our reading starting from Luke chapter 6 verse 37 includes what I think these days is probably the best known saying in all of scripture. 
Once upon, a, once upon a time, the best known saying in all the scripture might have been, for God so loved the world, or it might have been in the beginning. Or perhaps if you wanted to say the best known passage of scripture, it was probably the Lord's Prayer, because up until a certain point in time, everyone who went through the state school system used to say the Lord's Prayer at the start of every school day. But now I think the only one that we hear out there and the only one that would get thrown back into our faces is judge not and you will not be judged. They don't go any further. They don't say any more than that. They don't know anything from the Bible that's around about that. But they know those words. Judge not and you will not be judged. You know, I, I can tell any number of stories. I um, Many years ago, a drunk guy came to church and it was a communion service. It was another place, another church, another time. And I remember telling him, look, do not come into our communion service drunk. All right, you should not come in to the Lord's elements drunk. And what do you think his reply to me was? Judge not and you will not be judged. Now, I wasn't judging the man in a way. And, and I'm not saying that I'm perfectly noble, but in a way I was protecting him. Because, as we often read whenever we take communion in 1 Corinthians, it's actually to a person's harm for them to take communion without recognising the body of the Lord. In other words, without discerning just how sacred and how holy a thing that it is that they are doing. A drunk person should not take the, should not take the communion meal, should not take of those elements because they are bringing judgment upon themselves. But... The word to me that he tried to reply was, judge not and you will not be judged. And that was all he knew. Well, we need to think about that. And, you know, possibly the longest part of this sermon is going to be given to considering those words. Are we to consider these, these words of Jesus like we might consider the Proverbs? You know, if I, if I say, turn to Proverbs 16.2, there you will find a saying, a, a, a pill of wisdom, if you want to think of it that way. And when you look around in Proverbs, though some of the individual Proverbs have obviously been arranged in a context, sometimes they appear all on their own. And if you want to just memorise a proverb for, for wisdom's sake, well, that actually works. You know, if I say to you, um, you should memorise Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. It's a useful little saying. It reminds you that all things come from the hand of God, that God knew everything before it was even going to happen, that God created everything for his glory. But here in the Gospel of Luke, here in Luke chapter 6, we have to consider these things in their context. And the commandment to judge not and you will not be judged should not just be taken as this um, blunt instrument with which to beat down every possible argument. Judge not and you will not be judged. Does the scripture tell us, for example, about what kind of people ought to be trusted with responsibility in the church? The office of elder, the office of deacon. If we're given guidelines as to what kind of people ought to be given responsibility in the church, don't we therefore have to exercise judgment as to whom we entrust with responsibility? 
We've got to absorb the guidelines given and then we must exercise judgment according to the guidelines given by God. So are we sinning when we say this person is suited to the eldership and this person is not? And the answer is, no, we're not sinning. That's what we're commanded to do in Scripture. And that is some kind of judgment. In Later on, here in Luke, as the sermon is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says that no good tree bears bad fruit, no bad tree bears good fruit. Well, how are you to recognise good fruit from bad fruit? If you're not comparing good to that which God calls good, and bad to that which God calls bad, you are actually judging, but you are judging according to the standard that God has set. Once again, we are commanded in a way to make judgment. Jesus here in verse 37 says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. We need to think carefully, therefore, about what it is that he's actually saying. An important part of what he's saying as we interpret this actually comes very nearby. Verse 40, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. We, being disciples of Jesus, are to be like Jesus. And Jesus himself did actually judge many things and many people. There are people who came to Jesus saying, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, no, you don't. You actually don't have what it takes to be my disciple. Off you go. Consider the rich young man who claimed to be earnest and religious and righteous and observant of all of God's law. And Jesus said to him, oh, Wonderful, you've got potential. Give away all your money. Make yourself a poor man and follow after me. And the young man said, that's too much to ask. Turned around, walked away. So how are we to understand this? Judge not and you will not be judged. Well, the way I'm going to give it to you is I'm going to slow it down with a whole lot more words that I think get us to what it is that Jesus is saying. Do not judge hastily. Do not judge in ignorance. Do not make any judgment where you do not need to. Do not pass words of condemnation because anybody can be saved through the grace of God. Do not speak as though you yourself are God, for you are not. God is the judge. As far as is possible, restrain yourself from judging anybody, but in situations where you must, you judge according to the standards that God has set. That's what he's getting at. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Remember, Jesus said that we're to be like our master. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Think about what it is that Jesus is doing. Okay, the Gospel of Luke. There's a mission statement in in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to get to it, the Lord willing, as we move forward through the Gospel of Luke. But Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
the eternally begotten Son of God, took upon himself flesh and came down from heaven in order to bring salvation to the people of God. Think of the patience that he is exercising. You know, you know Jesus, as God the Son of God, would have been doing no wrong in saying, let every sinner be condemned to death. Let no one be saved. That would be legal justice. And justice is a good thing. We want those who apply the law to apply the law with justice. But Jesus, in love, for God so loved the world. Jesus, in mercy. Jesus, according to the steadfast love of God, which indicates that God is patient. He is patient with us. He will not always chide. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. And I would say that this is actually one of those things that applies both to theologians talk about um, horizontal relationships and they talk about lateral relationships. Horizontal, it's up. Your relationship to God above. Your relationship to the one who is over you and that is God. And then lateral, it's your relationship to those who are beside you or around you. I think this applies both ways. Judgmental people in the end are judged by the people around them. Nobody likes to be in the presence of a condemning hypocrite because anyone who is utterly and totally condemning, what are they but a hypocrite? Nobody likes to be in the presence of that person. You know, the, the kind of person that sees one or two particular faults and as far as they're concerned, so-and-so is finished. They're not a Christian. They can't possibly be a Christian. They're a hypocrite. They're a liar. They're a pretender. And yes, I've heard people say stuff like that. I've heard people carry on like that. Those people end up having no friends. They end up, you know, What's the old joke? Scott, no friends and never had. <laughs> I can laugh at that. I don't care. People can say it. When Usually when I meet someone and I say my name's Scott and they say, ah, oh, Scott, no friends. It's like, the, it's like it's apparently one of the old Australian jokes. I said, yeah, mate, and never did. Doesn't bother me, right? But these people who are condemning, they end up off on their own. They end up alone. They end up not gathering with the saints, you know, and from, from the height of their own little kingdom and their own little throne, they, they make their pathetic pronouncements on the world around about them and every church is a false church and every Christian makes false profession and there's no church that truly teaches, teaches the Bible. So they end up being hated people. I think this whole idea of condemning and forgiving, it's not only speaking of God, all right, a humble Christian person judges not in ignorance and does not condemn because we know that it's not our place and we are willing to forgive and we are being forgiven. The people around us appreciating that we're not judgmental and hypocritical are willing to accept us and the people around us appreciating that we are forgiving of them and their situation are willing to be forgiving of us and our situation and also understand that if we are complete hypocrites in this area, if we forget where it is that we come from and forget what it is that we really are, 
sinners saved by grace. Well, maybe we never belonged to God in the first place. And we ourselves are storing up judgment and condemnation against ourselves. Jesus then goes on to speak of generosity. And this is not just generosity in food, sharing food, though. All of these things are good things, sharing, but it's sharing of all good things. Give, bless, increase, help, strengthen, give, and it will be given to you. And then he uses a marketplace illustration. This uh, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Most of the commentators that I've read on this passage speak of basically an old-fashioned marketplace where food is being sold. Um, you know, it's, it's the marketplace where there's open bartering, trade, etc., etc., and you end up agreeing to a certain purchase price. Let's say it's for wheat and for, to fill your bowl, and you take your bowl to the marketplace. Well, apparently the habit is in these old Middle Eastern marketplaces you fill the wheat, you fill the bowl with the grain and then you shake it so that it settles and then you fill it again and you shake it again so that it settles some more and then you pour on top of it and then they get their hands and push it down in and then they shake it again and so you end up with a bowl that's got containing as much wheat as it possibly can and something like the cone of a volcano at the top of it. As much as you can possibly have, shaken, running over, Put into your lap. With the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. Once again, I think this is in both the sight of men and of God. Although when I say in the sight of men, you know, you can tell me I know people who are just outrightly hostile and this doesn't apply. Look, it's a generalization. I'm not, I'm not trying to give you a law of science. You know, it's not true if you say to a person, if you know, if you if you send your child to a school or a sports club or something like that, and you say to your child, if you are a good and decent person, everyone will treat you well and decently. All right. You do have to explain to them, you know what? There are some people in the world, they are angry, they are unhappy, and if you are a good and decent person, they will probably hate you for it and will probably attack you for it. You know, when just just a little by the by, at school, particularly at high school, I was a fairly unhappy kid and the kids I disliked the most were the kids from happy families who had happy lives, which meant most of them were Christians. <laughs> it was the church-going kids who had solid parents that, that obviously cared for them and supplied all their needs that I was the angriest with. It's just the way it was. But it's not true. But as a general rule, as we give... So we get back and we all know the way it works. If we are nasty and horrible to people, it's, it's not reasonable to expect that anything's going to come back to us other than nastiness and horribleness. Reading on, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And the answer is so obvious, isn't it? No, a blind man kill not lead a blind man, and of course they will fall into a pit. A disciple is not above his teacher. So the warning is that whoever is our disciple depends on whether or not we end up falling into a pit. I mean, sorry, whoever is our teacher, whoever we make ourselves a disciple of, 
is what I was trying to say. Whomever we make ourselves a disciple of, in the end, this is going to decide whether or not we fall into a pit. The disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Everybody in the world, you know, someone someone once said to me, I can't talk sense to you, you're too indoctrinated. And I just said straight back, everybody's indoctrinated, mate. Everybody. It's only a question of who got to you. Because everybody is being discipled. Everybody has a religion, whether they know it or not. Even an atheist has a religion. An atheist has set him or herself up as God in their own little world. Everybody has a religion. Everybody's being discipled. Whether their discipleship is coming from the words of Scripture or whether it's coming from the words of the entertainment or the words of their newsfeed, everybody is being indoctrinated, is being discipled, and everybody is becoming like the one who disciples them. That's the way it works. And a disciple is not above his teacher. If a person is being discipled by, Jesus says here, a blind man, if a person is being discipled by a false god, if a person is being discipled by a self-glorying politician, if a person is being discipled by an atheist, etc., etc., they're on their way to falling into a pit. And, you know, in the end, this idea of falling into a pit, it just gets worse and worse. Ultimately, every, every person you've ever met is on their way to some ultimate end. The ultimate end is either eternal life in the presence of God or eternally dying and never, never actually coming to total destruction away from the blessed presence of God in condemnation, in hellfire, in the pit of all pits, so, you know, so, so as to speak. Everybody follows people. Nobody seems to want to see it. I, I, you know, it's just, it's just so amusing when people try to tell you that they have autonomous free choice. Autonomous means of myself, my own law. Auto, self, nomos, law. Autonomous, my own law. I have autonomous free will. I take all my own choices. Well, look, ultimately, in a way, you take your choices. But nobody takes their choices apart from outside influence. Nobody. Once again, it's only a question of who's doing the indoctrinating, who's make, who is supplying, as it were, the most powerful influence. We're creatures. We're not God. When we choose God, it's because God has empowered us has enlivened our hearts, has turned our hearts toward him. And that's the only reason we exercise those choices. We then go on to what is possibly another of the very, very, very best known um, sayings or passages or in scripture. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, a lot of people do know that. And a lot of people will tell you to fix up your own life first before you try and give me any advice. You know, we've got some sayings, you know, the kettle called the, the, pe the, kettle called the pot black, for example. 
talking about when people used to cook over open fires and the and the outside of things like pots and kettles and and uh, baking trays or whatever you want to call them they would be pitch black my my grandmother did a lot of cooking over fires and she had some implements that were not kept in the kitchen they were spotlessly clean on the inside they were pitch black and carbonized on the outside and she never ever bothered about the carbon on the outside this wasn't interested didn't matter as long as the inside was clean and I could cook, I, she could cook in it, she was perfectly happy. And how many people do we know? I mean, this is kind of amusing. You're worried about the speck in your brother's eye, but you've got a log or it might say a beam or a tree in your own eye. You know, the, the word there that's um, translated log in the ESV could also be translated beam or rafter. You know, there's some big beams here, exposed beams in the ceiling. It would apply to these. Take the log out of your own eye and you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. In other words, look to your own troubles before you worry so much about dealing with anybody else's. It's, it, it is so easy to look at the people around about us and say, well, he ought to and she ought to. And if that person would only just... <laughs> and. You better understand something. Yeah, I don't want to look too closely at any particular person here. I'm not. I'm not trying to. Try, I'm not trying to sow discord amongst the brethren. But the truth is, all of you could look pretty closely at me and say you ought to. And if you wanted to, you know, if I gave you five minutes and said go away and compile a list of Scott's faults, all on your own, and each come back, I'll bet you there are at least three or four things that appeared in everybody's list, and they're all probably true. But the thing is, we could do it to everyone here. You know, let's leave James alone in the room and everybody go out and we'll compile a list of the faults of James. And then we come back and the list, you know, there'll probably be two, three things. Everybody's got exactly the same thing about James. But what's the value in that? What's the point of that? What good does that do anybody? Deal with, deal with your own shortcomings. You know, the scripture says iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The point there is basically meeting with someone whom you trust, who is basically equal to you, and being able to frankly and openly talk about the areas where you fall short. Now, the truth is a husband and a wife have great advantage in this. And I'm not saying this to be mean, but one of the greatest helps to my sanctification is that God has given me a godly wife. And I would hope that if you asked her, she would say one of the greatest helps to my sanctification is that God has given me a godly husband. And, and occasionally there's a bit of heat in that relationship because there are times when you really don't want to hear about it. There are times where you really don't want your, your, your dearly beloved to tell you, you know what? You're just in a bad mood for no particular reason. You're just being selfish. You're just being cranky and you need to pull your head in. But sometimes it has to be said, doesn't it? Or am I the only one? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sometimes it has to be said. And sometimes you have to be told. And who better to tell you but the person you love and that your life is bound to for the rest of this earthly life than the one that you're married to? You know, and, and you can and you can you can work this process out in private. 
away from the public eye. You don't need to know our personal private conversations. Isn't that for the best? I don't need to know yours. Isn't that for the best? Sometimes it's possible that you're going to uncover an issue that you do need help. And you do need to go and talk to someone that you trust and to get prayer and to get outside help. Sometimes that's the way it works. But generally speaking, we want to be able to be honest and we want to be able to be open and we want to be able to make positive criticisms. And we want to do that from humility. I know that I'm not perfect, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell a little story. This is from my own life. And um, before I tell it, I'll, I'll just give a few, um, a few little provisos because, for one, the person involved in this story, I'm friends with him now, and I know that he still occasionally listens to sermons that I've that I put online. So if he happens to listen to this one, there's no hard feelings, mate, and I say these things with a smile on my face. I got a phone call one night. It was a church elder. He rung me up. He said to me, Scott, can you tell me what a Christian is? I gave him an answer. My exact words, I don't remember, but it was something like a Christian, somebody who's born again by the Spirit of God and being sanctified and made Christ-like. And his answer, see, he had this set up. He was ready. His answer was, well, then you're not a Christian, are you? And I said, what did you just say? He said, I said, you're not a Christian, are you? I said, well, thank you so much for the blessing and goodbye. And I hung up. And then Lisa and I talked about it and basically decided we weren't going to return to that church. To anyone who's in any position of church responsibility, if you wanted someone to be estranged from you, do that. Anyway, a couple of weeks, he rang me up, said he wanted to come around and talk to me. I thought, you know what, maybe he's actually thought about what he did and realised that this wasn't wise and this wasn't the way that you're supposed to deal with people. And so I agreed, all right, you come around, let's have a chat. And he came around. And after a little bit of toing and froing, he basically told me that my problem was that I was too concerned about the meaning of words in the Bible and about what it takes to be truly a Christian and that all I needed to do was to be more loving and encouraging. And, you know, sometimes you say something to someone and you realise you actually hit the nerve, you got the spot. <coughs> and I said to him, this, this was sort of, this was the only, the, I honestly, on that day, this was the only argument I put back in his face. I said to him, all right, loving and encouraging. Is it loving and encouraging to ring somebody and tell them that you've decided they're not a Christian? And that got him. Now, as I said, we're friends. Don't worry about it. Eventually, the Lord did his work. The bitterness went away. We still see each other. We get on just fine. I don't think he would ever do anything like that again with anyone under any circumstances. I think that might have been a very steep learning curve for that particular man. But that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that it, take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the see the log that is in your own eye? 
you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. All right, we are not to deal with each other as though we're dealing from this situational condition of moral superiority and perfection. And remember that every temptation that every person comes under, we ourselves, we may not come under that exact same temptation in that exact same way, but we ourselves are liable to be tempted in the same way. Not not one of us can claim to be perfect. Not one of us can claim that we have perfectly put to death the flesh and we will never be tempted by our own wicked desires ever again. Not one of us can claim that we are perfectly aware of our own weakness and sin and therefore we will never commit those sins again. Okay, you don't, you do not, we do not associate with one another as though somebody is morally superior to everyone around them. And when you see that kind of relationship, you might just be seeing the birth of a cult. You might just be seeing the birth of a false religion where someone who is a false prophet and an outright liar is setting up a false religion that will do nothing other than harvest souls for hell for for decades, even centuries to come. You know, I've heard Mormons talk about Joseph Smith on in similar terms to the way that we would speak about Jesus. And he was a fraud and he was a liar. And it's just amazing that anyone could claim that he was not. We don't relate with one another as though somebody is so utterly, totally morally superior that they couldn't possibly fall into the same trap that we fell into or that we couldn't possibly fall into the same trap that they fell into. It's for us to hate our sins. We're actually commanded to hate our sins. But we hate our own sins. You know, hate sin in our own lives. Hate the wickedness that's found in our own heart. We're to love the brethren and we're to hate wickedness. But we hate the wickedness found in our own heart. We deal with each other from from a position of humility. And we remember a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his master. I think again of the passage that we looked at this morning concerning Isaac. Do not criticise another man's servant before his master. He can be made to stand and he will be. We answer to God. Each and every individual of us answers to God for who we are, for what we are, for what we do. God will make us stand even at the same time as he makes us feel convicted of our sins and repentant. If someone's truly walking in the right direction, and this is the thing, the question's not whether or not somebody is showing the maturity that we think they ought to show. The question is, is that person walking in the way of the Lord and growing more like Jesus? It doesn't matter how slowly. It really doesn't. Trust in the providence of God. Trust in the work of God's Holy Spirit. It, it, unless somebody is doing something that actually requires us to intervene and pull them into line, and that something would have to be some kind of public sin or action that draws a church into disrepute, 
that basically makes the world around about us say you're nothing but a pack of hypocrites because this happens. Unless somebody is sinning in that way, for the most part, surely we're better off trusting them into the work, into the hands of God. If that person is walking in the way, if that person is staying in the fellowship of the saints, if that person is sitting under the word of God, if that person is not a boastful, hard-hearted sinner, well, then surely we can trust God to grow that person according to the will of God, according to God's timing and according to God's way. I was talking to someone not so long back. We were talking about how how some people grow in the Lord. And I said, well, one thing I've realised there are some people who can only learn by stumbling. It's just the way it is. There are some people who have to trip over before they learn to watch where they put their feet. There are other people who actually see someone else trip over and learn not to, not to walk in the same steps. But there are certainly people who have to fall, who have to stumble before they learn to walk. And in the end, we have to be willing to trust in God to bring out Christ-likeness in his people. In the end, we're not God. In the end, we're not the Holy Spirit. In the end, apart from in general terms, we don't know the heart of any person. In general terms, I know your hearts. What do I mean? I trust that you are Christians and that your confession is valid. So therefore, I know that within each and every one of us, there is the flesh. There is the old man. There is the sinful nature that we're at war with in each and every one of us. In one way or another, we are seeking to fight against the flesh. At the same time, I know that we who are in Christ are being prompted and strengthened by God's Holy Spirit, are being given pure and holy desires by God's Holy Spirit, and we who are in Christ actually want the things that God wants for us. We love God's laws and we do not find them burdensome what we find burdensome is our flesh, which is always inclined to rebel against the law of God. In general terms, I know our hearts. In general terms, you know our hearts. If you know the scripture, the scripture tells you what to expect in the heart of a Christian. But in terms of specifics, I only know what you tell me and I don't claim to have prophetic insight. So, judge not and you will not be judged. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the words of our Lord Jesus, and we thank you that these are words that have come to us straight from heaven. This is wisdom from heaven. Our Father, we thank you that you have made it so clear to us how we are to live, what we are to do, the people that we are to be, as we live in the name of your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, by the power of your Spirit, you would strengthen us in the war with the flesh that you would help us to be genuine and humble. Help us, Lord, not to be hypocrites, not to be judgmental, not to be fools, not to set ourselves in the place of God, but to remember that you are God, that Jesus is our King, he is our Saviour, he is our Prince, and he is our Good Shepherd. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.